Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of conservatorships and the Britney Spears case. Welcome back, everyone. Like many of you, I plowed through Britney Spears' memoir last week, and it really gave more perspective and depth to the stories that really had only been told by others up until now. We wanted to build in some much-needed self-care bandwidth for ourselves during this very busy month, and we thought it would be appropriate to re-release this episode on conservatorships for those who didn't catch it in May of 2021 when we originally released it. Yes, it's been some time, and we hope that Britney's strength to write this book is appreciated and we can finally as a collective leave this poor woman alone she really lost 13 years of her life to total control by others and this book reveals why she's exploring who she is at this stage in her life so i say let her spin on instagram and find the freedom to do whatever makes her feel alive as long as she's safe however we don't want you to think that we're talking out of both sides of our mouths here In this episode, we do comment on her social media behavior and appearance. We bring up observations of behavior that made some listeners uncomfortable. And this is a very uncomfortable situation that we're all witness to in the world today. Ultimately, we want to drive home that her issues are really nobody else's business unless she wants it to be. And her book certainly widens our understanding, our empathy our compassion, and our sympathy. Enjoy this masterclass by Dr. Scott and his California conservatorship expertise to help bring context to Brittany's incredibly rare case. The way that we did it is Dr. Scott sort of acts as the expert and I act as the listener asking some questions along the way before we get into Brittany's case. So we hope you will find this helpful in light of her book being out and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Shiloh, of course, here with... Dr. Scott. Hi, everybody. Hey there. So we took an extra week break from our last episode. Munchausen syndrome just wiped us out. Absolutely. (laughs) And we're rounding out May and pre-Crime Con with an episode that you guys have also been asking for ever since this is been a really big topic in the last couple of years and ramping up in 2019 is the free Britney movement and what conservatorships are all about. And I have a feeling I'm going to say conservatorship a lot today and I hope not to mess it up because I always want to put an extra er in there or something. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because conservatorship doesn't like because I, I use that term all the time in my in my evaluations in my notes and there's not actually a word it is a word but it's not in the dictionary which we should really it should be added conservatorship conservatee yes. conservator like all the because if you try and every time you try and type it it wants to autocorrect to something else which is annoying as hell <laughs> right yeah that's what it was doing for me so this is uh yeah your wheelhouse Scott I mean definitely you're going to take the lead on explaining all of this to us I think that has been the curiosity factor here is yeah. what exactly is that how can it happen in the way that we think we're seeing it play out with celebrities um and there have been quite a few that have been put under conservatorship so yeah there have been I I want to you know I, I want to start out before we even try and start pulling this whole thing apart 
I want to say something that's really super important. Brittany or Miss Spears, like I, I feel off a kind of odd calling her Brittany, even though I know she has, you know, millions of fans that feel that sort of parasocial kinship with with celebrities. And I certainly, I don't necessarily have it with her. I have enjoyed her music, certainly. But there's, you know, she has a great following. And as we have alluded to in previous episodes, it's very important to understand that this is a case that is currently being considered in the legal system. Both Dr. Shiloh and I are attached to law enforcement and the legal system in Southern California. And we want to be very careful about certain things. About For one thing, we would never want to necessarily affect the outcome of something that we're not paid to be part of. And another thing is, is that there are privacy concerns. So I don't want to be conjecturing about what a diagnosis is or who has what diagnosis. So I'm going to be speaking a lot in hypotheticals today. Mm -hmm. And we want to just want to be really careful. And I'm also, I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm going to be calling some people out because much like the Cecil Hotel, at least Lamb issue with people that were kind of jumping to conclusions before they had all the facts or had all the information, there's the possibility of stirring a pot that you really, it was not fair to the person that you say you care the most about. Well, at the end of the day, we really have zero information about what's going on. Yes. I mean, we can look through Instagram and go, what the hell's going on? Or sort of sideline with these news reports or court hearings. We have zero idea what's that. Probably really when you look, you know, when you were mentioning like diagnosis and things like that, we don't even have that information. Nope. Like that has never been released on Brittany, nor should it. So, you know, there's there's a lot of conjecture because people want to fill in the blanks when they don't know what's going on. And I'm sorry, you you we just don't have the right to know what's going on. I I think that's a really great way of putting it. And as on top of that is that this is a fascinating case and it's important to have this conversation at this time in the history of our country about mental health and mental illness and the stigmas associated with with all of that spectrum. And we need to start having more frank conversations about this and how we wanna take care of each other and what kind of social contract we feel we have. And it's a big question and there are no simple answers and we'll we'll investigate and pull that apart as we talk today. So in jumping right in, there's we keep tossing around this term conservatorship, the auto the unautocorrectable word. And conservatorship today, I'm going to be specifically talking about what it is in the state of California because each state within the United States has its own definition of quote unquote guardianship or conservatorship. So what we call one thing here in California might be something completely different in Massachusetts and Wisconsin and Alabama and Texas and Iowa all over. Everybody has their own versions because here in the United States, each individual state has a great amount of rights in how they pursue the care of the mentally ill in the community. And I use the term mentally ill because that is generally what conservatorships are for, which is something very interesting in all the media discussion, including the documentaries that we reviewed for today's episode, is that they are very coyly calling it a medical issue. A 5150 is not a medical hold. The 5150 right. is a mental health hold. 5150 is the name of the law. It is the Welfare and Institutions Code 
5150 to instigate a three-day or 72-hour hold. And then if it's extended, it goes to 5250 or 5585 for a minor. These are all legal terms. So 5150 is a psychiatric hold. Conservatorship is a long-term psychiatric hold based on certain criteria. So a conservatorship, it is a legal ruling that's going to allow a judge to grant control over a conservatee's finances if that person is unable to maintain them or is due to some kind of physical or mental limitation. So yes, you can you could have no history of mental illness but suffer severe brain damage or you could have onset of dementia or Alzheimer's related dementia be no longer able to care for yourself and a court will grant conservatorship to an entity such as a family member or the public guardian's office or the regional center or another entity that can then make decisions for the person. It's very, very rare, almost to non-existent, that you can force medications on a person who is under conservatorship. So in reviewing here in the LA County website, conservatorship is a serious matter. I absolutely agree with that. It requires a court hearing with all interested parties present. If the conservatorship is established, the individual or conservatee loses many civil rights most of us take for granted. He or she may lose the right to decide where to live or what medical treatment to accept or refuse. They may lose the right to control their assets or manage their income. The conservator, by assuming the responsibility for these matters, becomes legally accountable to the court. So just as a quick example right there, if there's someone down at Union Station in downtown Los Angeles, and this is the happiest, one of the happiest, nicest people you've ever met, but is so mentally ill that they don't understand that both of their arms are fully infected with gangrene, then we have the right to take away their civil freedoms because they don't understand how sick they are. And we're trying to protect their life. I know I'm using a very broad example. I'm using a de-identified example of something that actually is a kind of case that I would deal with on a weekly basis. But in that case, we would start with a psychiatric hold to see if we could establish a baseline understanding so the person can get their their understanding back of what's going on. And if we're unable to do that, then we would pursue a conservatorship where this person would be put into what's called a SNF, a skilled nursing facility where that individual's medical needs can be addressed while we're trying to make uh, amends to their uh, mental health status as well. So you mentioned before that it's not a medical hold. So Despite the fact that this hypothetical situation, there's a medical problem, it's the mental health issue that is preventing them from caring for themselves. Right. And the, yes, thank you for that, that, that description, because the issue here is that we've established that due to this person's lack of mental ca- capacity at the moment, they do not understand that they are a danger to themselves in that moment. So... We always look at, in any situation, medical is always going to trump mental health issues. There's no use in asking someone if they're suicidal, if they're bleeding out from both arms, right? We've got to get them stabilized medically, and then we can do the full evaluation and the other means uh, to prevent it from happening again. We have the Lanterman Petrus Act. So that's an LPS ruling. That's a law here in California that protects undue advantage of this law. 
Because as we referred to in the chicken coop murders, when we gave the example of the Changeling movie with Angelina Jolie, this was a woman who back in the 30s was protesting that her her child had been replaced and it had been her child had been replaced with a, a, a another kid. And the law enforcement just locked her up in a, on a psych hold, yep. trying to tell the world that she was crazy. So we put a law into place, LPS, to make sure that that doesn't happen, but still allows for people to be taken care of. So there are conservatorships that are meant basically just to make sure that this person doesn't use all of their money and give it away, and they then have no means to take care of themselves. Um, and that can be people who are in a group home or in sort of um, even a, a locked facility. There can be a person that manages their finances. And sometimes if there is no family member or person willing to take care of it, then the public guardian's office will take care of it. So, so can I ask, and, yeah. and I don't know, I know I'm just pulling this out of the air, um, but is are you able to explain the difference between a conservatorship and a power of attorney? Yes. Okay. So a power of attorney or a POA at least here in the state of California and in a lot of states, they are called power of attorney basically all over the U.S., but they are very different in state to state. Like the, the power of attorney in Alabama is very different from a power of attorney here in California. But basically it just gives, like if you were to give me power of attorney, what it would mean is if you became incapacitated or you were in a situation where you could not make legal legal decisions, you're allowing me to make legal decisions for you. I can file your taxes for you and sign on your behalf. I can manage the money in your accounts because you have given me permission. But with the power of attorney, you can also carve out exactly what that POA is going to allow and what it doesn't allow. Got it. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a little okay. bit more individualized rather than just a blanket California law. Right. Yes, absolutely. So the, the person who or organization that the judge chooses to name it, to name as the person responsible is the conservator. The person who cannot care for themselves, allegedly, is called the conservatee. So the purpose of the Lannerman-Petrus Short Act was to end the inappropriate, indefinite, and involuntary commitment of mentally disordered persons, people with developmental disabilities, and persons impaired by chronic alcoholism, and to eliminate legal disabilities to provide prompt evaluation and treatment of persons with serious mental disorders or impaired by chronic alcoholism. So it's saying, saying two things there. It's we're going to take away the unfair use of psychiatric holds, but we're also going to allow the appropriate evaluation and placement of people who are impaired. And we've actually kind of turned a blind eye over the past 20 to 40 years of substance issues being a reason for a conservatorship. We've been kind of in this gray area allowing people like, well, look, if you want to use and it hurts you and you want to drink yourself to death, then we're going to allow it. And we're actually moving away from that to where we can actually put people on longer term holds for their substance use issues, especially when they've gotten to the point where they're so impaired that they're really not making reasonable decisions anymore. You mean like treating addiction as a health crisis? What a concept. What? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a concept, um, right? So with the Latterman Petrus Act, 
That was in 1967. It sounds like for a few decades prior to that, we kind of got crazy with like yep, locking yep. people up willy nilly and that this was finally something that was like, okay, we need a lot of like undoing here of people. We were just locking away and throwing away the key. Yes. And interestingly okay. enough, like it, that sort of coincides with really the big surge in women's rights at that yeah. time in U.S. history, because what were the majority of these people being put away? Problem wives and problem daughters and problem girlfriends. Sure. Uh, that, that's my theory on it. I'd love to see some more data, but I think that it's, it's not a coincidence that those things happened at the same time. So the purpose is to guarantee public safety and protect public safety to safeguard the individual's rights through judicial review, and to provide individualized treatment, supervision, and placement services to a conservatorship program for gravely disabled persons. So the act, in effect, ended all of hospital commitments by the judiciary system. So basically, you couldn't pay a judge off anymore, except in the, you know, well, you couldn't pay them off anymore. But they still use the judicial system in terms of criminal sentencing. In other words, like convicted sexual offenders and those who were gravely disabled. So that the definition of someone who is gravely disabled is someone who is unable to obtain food, clothing, or housing. As an example of an individual so impaired that you could put food in front of them. And unless they were prompted or actually physically fed, they wouldn't know how to eat, eat for themselves or, or they would be eating non-nutritive substances or rotting food. So yeah. you know, there's a lot of different ways that grave disability can present. I 5150 um, one person when I was a police officer for gravely disabled, only one time that I saw it. And it, it was still even kind of a hard call um, because it wasn't as if this person was just totally incapacitated, lying on the ground, not knowing where they were, but they were absolutely, they were confined to a wheelchair. They mm -hmm. were being evicted from a motel, had zero family or anyone to care for them, to even make arrangements for them. And in a motorized wheelchair to where that thing was like about to give out, like literally had, like could not just go out onto the street yeah. and had some pretty significant like medical wounds to their legs that I think was like diabetes related or something. It was very sad. She was like, please don't do this to me. But there was no other, it was a very hard decision, a really, really tough spot to be in. Well, it's not easy to get certified. You as a former law, when you were law enforcement, law enforcement is able to write 5150s, but they still have to be written appropriately or you can take right. them to the hospital and the psychiatrist or the attending social worker can go, this is bullshit. This is not a legit hold. Get them, you know, take them out of here. But in that case, you actually did that person a favor because most likely that was the way to get them set up with a higher level of care mm -hmm. because, okay, they go and the, then they're, they're basically being taken care of by the hospital. The hospital can address probably the, the wounds, especially diabetic wound care is so significant and so in, in need of immediate care that person probably got a better outcome because the discharge planner is going to go, hey, I know you were in this motel and you got kicked out. Here's this group home that has ADA certification. We can get you here. And that's one of the great things about living in California, and at least in Southern California, is the amount of social services that are available to people who have are differently abled or mentally ill or developmentally disabled. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal if people sure. will take advantage of it. 
So that was great that they ended the unlawful and the, you know, the, the really poor use of those laws, but still it's not a perfect system. So there's also a version called a probate conservatorship versus an LPS conservatorship. So an LPS conservatorship is really only for people who are seriously mentally ill and in need of special care, usually placement in like a locked facility or at least in need of very powerful drugs to be control behavior. And that's something we want to talk about a little bit later on the line too. But a lot of people, maybe our listeners out there, maybe you live in big cities or maybe you don't live in big cities. But it's not necessarily likely that you are running into the most severely mentally ill in your community on a daily basis. And if you're living in a large urban area, unfortunately and sadly, the vast majority of our homeless populations fall within some pretty significant mental health diagnoses, especially here in California. And these are the people generally that we are trying to keep from falling between the cracks. Yeah. So those kind of conservatorships mean that people probably were doing very well prior on some significant um, psychiatric prescription drugs, and now they've somehow fallen off, and we want to give them the opportunity to get back on. So in addition, once a person is hospitalized, then they can be held basically very easily for 72 hours. I mean, that's what the law supports. It is possible that if a person recompensates within... 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 20, you know, 28 hours, then the attending psych can go, hey, you're good to go. We're going to let you go. Yeah, it's like an evaluation period. It's not like you're just throwing them in a room and keeping them there for three days. And then the doors open up automatically. It's it's an evaluation observation period. Absolutely. And it, even when like someone self like voluntarily checks themselves in, that's evaluative too. And if the doctor thinks that they are not okay to leave, the doctor then can write a 5150 hold and keep them there longer. They um, can, but that's very rare, actually. If a person comes in on a voluntary hold, it is mm-hmm. very, very rare. Or let's say a, a person's on a 24 hour, on a 72 hour hold and then it ends. And the social worker is like really concerned about the person. They can they can say, hey, why don't you stay with us for a couple of more days? You're free to go, but why don't you stay here and let's try and set something up for you? And then that person starts to decompensate again while they're there. They cannot put them back on a halt. They have to be discharged from the facility and be evaluated by another team. Why do you think that is? I don't know. That's kind of news to me. Yeah, they can't do it because there's the potential for for financial abuse by hospitals because they could just keep going. Oh, just keep per- extending it. Exactly, they could keep Got extending it. it. So there, but unfortunately, many times they're in a between a rock and a hard place because, like, oh, this person now has decompensated, but they're on a voluntary hold. We're going to do whatever we can to really warmly encourage them to stay. Right, but. If they insist on leaving, we're going to call PMRT, which is one of our psychiatric mobile response teams, or we're going to call 911 and have a smart team go out. And the smart team is going to like look at them on the street. And if they feel like it's appropriate to go forward and evaluate them again, then they would re-hospitalize them. Got it. So it's complex and it actually should be complex in these kind of ways so that we're just not, you know, walk uh, locking up people willy-nilly. So now... One of the things that they say in the documentary, which is not true, is that they uh, many, many people that are not professionals that are just comments on the New York Times uh, doc 
are saying that conservatorship is mainly for people with dementia. And that's, no, that's the ones you hear the most about, but they are not the most common ones at all. And I don't know why they keep asserting that. I mean, I don't know how that got to be sort of an assumption. And in fact, a couple of attorneys said this during the documentary. And, you know, I've worked with some really great attorneys, but they're, these attorneys that are being interviewed for this particular case are not working in the community mental health milieu. They're working in the high-end, celebrity, high-profile cases, and that's a completely different world. Oh, sure. It's its own bubble, of course. Right. Right. So the court designates or assigns the conservator. They can take control of the conservatee's estate, assets, and in some case, take care of their quote unquote person. Like they basically, I'm in charge of you. I I have this, I have taken away your civil and personal rights, and I get to decide where you eat, what you eat, what you're going to do. So that's very rare for one particular reason, is because most conservatives are able to feed themselves and they are able to clothe themselves and they are able to ambulate and take care of themselves during the day within a locked facility. But we're talking about some more severe cases that is possible for them to be in charge of their person. Again, that's very rare and it is very rare also to force medication. And that's a good thing, although some people, in, in some cases, especially the, the type that I work with, medication may be the only way that they can have a quality life. Right. So, and this is from what I've learned from the Britney Spears saga is that there can be kind of two parts and I'll, I'll talk about this more when I get to her, but it sounds like there's a conservator can have, the court can sort of decipher it into, okay, a conservator is over all the legal, financial, the big picture stuff, right? So they're not blowing all their money or making poor legal decisions for themselves. And then there's the daily functioning stuff that can also be what they oversee and or there can be a separate person assigned to each of those. Maybe there's more of an attorney type or professional firm person that oversees the financial, legal, and then maybe a family member's the day-to-day stuff. Does that sound right? Okay. And so, I mean, when I was learning about conservatorship a little bit deeper, you're kind of returning this person to child status. Is that an interesting way to put it? I mean... Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's pretty accurate. Okay. And it's not all... I mean, and in many cases, it's not always fair. I mean, it's... Uh, one of the things that you see in the midst of Brittany, whatever her challenges are, is that you see her throughout the last decade under conservatorship in different interviews and in different situations where she is absolutely oriented times four. She's very clear. She's very linear. She's very organized. And that is shocking to look at something like that and think, oh, this person's on conservatorship. But like you were saying earlier, we don't see the other states. We see other hints that something is problematic. And to her credit, problematic to the extent that she has gone in on voluntary holds at times. And if she's on a voluntary hold, you know, oh my God, stop taking her picture. Leave the woman alone. It, yeah. That just, that is the most shocking thing about the paparazzi culture in our oh, society. Yes. That is we just, will get there. That will uh, cause any of us to uh, 
<laughs> to check ourselves in. Right, um, right. So are, are there checks and balances to this system? I mean, is there are there some that just, okay, here's the conservatorship. Do we check in on it every couple of years? Okay. So look, yes, that's a great question. The, the main thing is it is incredibly difficult to get a conservatorship. And I say this as a professional who who has pursued these for a number of clients who desperately need to be conserved because they are a constant chronic danger to themselves. They are a danger to others. And, you know, gosh, I, I can't, unfortunately, I, I don't even want to go down the role of giving a hypothetical situation that's de-identified because, you know, I just don't want to take that chance. Sure. But I just wanted to say that it's very difficult because the process is that the person has to be either be already hospitalized or incarcerated, and then we pursue it. In fact, that's one of the things that makes Brittany's conservatorship so radically different from 99.9% of all the others is that she did not go into her conservatorship from incarceration or from an inpatient, inpatient psychiatric setting. They pulled her ass into court with mm -hmm. a lot of money behind it which is one of the most disturbing things about this is like how much money is being involved. There are a lot of people on the payroll in this. And that is one of the things that is brought up during the documentary is how can you actually have a really clear, authentic, transparent process when basically Brittany is paying for her defense and she's paying for the, not really prosecution, but she's paying for the people not advocating for her as well. It's all coming out of her right. pocket. Right, right. Because it happens to be family. Right. So yeah. you had a list. I think you did a great thing looking at the kind of diagnoses that can get you conserved. Did you want to mention some right. of those? So you said that dementia was not the number one. Is there a number one or is it kind of spread all over? Because dementia is one, of course. I was trying to get in touch with my absolutely wonderful colleague who's at Adult Protective Services here in Los Angeles, and I won't use their name, but they are fantastic. And I wasn't <laughs> able to get the numbers, but we may have it for Get Vocal by next week. Okay, good. But it's not, look, it, it, it's not easy and it is frustrating. I have had individuals who have the level of dementia that they should not be driving and they should not be living alone in their house, but they are. Right. And, and because right. it is a difficult situation for someone, you have to go in and basically dismantle someone's life, completely mm -hmm. dismantle their life and then find a place for them to stay. And then who pays for it? Yes. That's yeah. a big question, too. Yeah. So there absolutely has to be a DSM diagnosis, though. So you can't just be like, uh, this person's off or we're seeing some behavior. There has to be some sort of evaluation done to where then they are diagnosed. Um, and that can help the argument for the conservatorship to be a little bit more robust. You know, right. there there is a, a pervasive issue going on here that is probably not ever going to go away, might be able to be treatable. Let's see if we can get it treatable. Um, that's my other question is like, I wonder, ask your friend if there's any per any percentages on people that come out of conservatorship that sort of get well and are able to maintain on their own. I would well, love to know about that. 
let me go back before I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to finish your question from earlier too, because you were, you asked about checks and balances. The other check and balance that is in place as it should be in place, but is problematic is that there are no, really no indefinite conservatorships anymore. Like the way it is in the courts now is it comes up either every six months or every year for review. Is that good. a good thing? It's a good thing in that we're going to look at this case and see if this person meets criteria still. And if there's a system or if it's a kind of a gray area, is there a system for them to be released to where we think they might have a chance? That's great. The bad thing is, is that if no one is notified, if the previous conservator, if the public guardian's office, who was completely overwhelmed at this point, if they don't get the note that clients A, B, C, D, E, F, G are coming up on June 1st for a review, and they can't get in and make the case for whether or not the person requires further conservatorship, the court will just let them go. And the court will let them go with no resources. Like, so you're coming from this lock facility and basically you're walking out on the street, free as a bird with nothing. Maybe they can go get their oh. SSI. No, so it's, that's, that's. So when you say the court lets them go, meaning like, okay, nobody came here to argue to keep it. Yes. Or, oh my gosh. I thought it would be the opposite. Like they're like, oh, nope. Sorry. You're staying under conservatorship. Nope, it is the opposite. Wow. It's the opposite of that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's so interesting. Uh, so aside from dementia, which is definitely a diagnosis that we see this with, um, think of the other diagnoses that would have some sort of profound psychosis. So your schizophrenia, um, it might be related to bipolar with psychotic features. Bipolar disorder is definitely a disorder that we see as well as a very much very common uh, diagnosis for conservatorship. Um, and just very quickly, that's going to be looking at episodes of severe depression and some sort of uh, level of mania. But with that, people get hospitalized in either of those episodes for harm to themselves or harm to others pretty often if it's severe enough. So you're, you're starting to see the pattern of what kind of diagnoses we're talking about here. It's where they're really are, they're meeting that level of, of harm to themselves or somebody else. Or of course, you talked about being gravely disabled, which I think we painted a pretty good picture for what that can look like. What we're going to get to in a moment is that's actually the category that we know Brittany is under. At least that's what has been released. There Which might be other true. stuff too. Yeah. And that's really skeevy. That but is let really that skeevy. sink in, especially if, as we kind of go through a timeline. Um but grave disability is a legal status. It's used as a criterion in addition to danger to self or others. And it's the basis of involuntary commitments as well in only nine of 50 states, though. So yeah. guess we're one of them. Um, it's not a criteria in Washington, D.C. It's just not a thing. Um, and I think it's because it is sort of like... Do you know it when you see it? Does this person fit into it or not? Like I said, with my situation, it was a really tough call, but I didn't know what else to do for this woman. I couldn't leave her without anything. And right. so it, it felt like the last resort for me. Um, and honestly, I felt I felt awful because that's not what she wanted. She was obviously distressed by it. 
but I felt so grateful that that was an option for me because what else was I going to do? So in California, we define it as a condition in which a person as a result of a mental health disorder or impairment by chronic alcoholism, which is newly added to this. Um, well, it's, again, always, it's always been there. We've just never really emphasized it. Oh, we've never, we've never put that into action. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. That they are unable to provide for their basic personal needs um, that Scott mentioned earlier. Some states like Louisiana have also been including substance-related or addictive disorders and adding medical care to those needs that that person can't take care of for themselves. So another example of how we're starting to move in that direction. It may also be used in certain defined violent felony cases for mental incompetence. Grave disability and violence don't usually dovetail very much. I mean, they're more of like a parallel process. Grave disability means sort of indicates inability to have volition or motivation to engage in self-care. Maybe they might act out in perceived defensive motions that could be perceived as violence, but I don't it also can be things that, you know, we don't, I, I know you touched on it before, but, you know, it doesn't have to be that totally psychotic, mentally ill person. It can be somebody who gets into a, a, car, a horrific car accident and now they have brain damage and this is the category that they now fall under or any other type of brain disorders that fall under the big umbrella of dementia where you know, they are, they just don't have their capacity to make these decisions for themselves. So, you know, I know this could probably streamline some legal hurdles for some folks who have family members that are in this position, but, you know, there's also so many ways in which can be taken advantage of that. I'm glad to hear there are checks and balances out there, at least in California, it sounds like we're doing a pretty good job, but there's always improvement and we can always do better with how we're handling the mentally ill. Yeah, we have a mental health court here in Los Angeles that's referred to sometimes as Court 95, even though it's not in the same location as it used to be, which would have that designee. But our mental health court does a really good job of trying to help the people who are in need in this particular way. And I have been in the court where, you know, I've spent the entire day in court waiting for, you know, a couple of my cases to come up. And you'll see multiple people come through that live in what we call boarding cares or group homes, and they are long-term chronically mentally ill, and they understand that they need help. And they will come up in front of the judge, and the judge will ask them, do you want to continue your conservatorship? And the, the people will say yes. And they're not like, let me just be very clear. These are not people who are being lazy. It's just that very specific area of individuals with mental illness where they understand that they need help. And there are those people, you just don't hear about them because those are the ones that aren't doing anything in the community that would kind of garner that kind of a, a newsworthy, you know, let it show on the screen yeah. kind of uh, drama. So it's a system that can work when it, when it works well and when it works right. And unfortunately, you know, we do see a good bit of people with dementia that fall under this categorization or certainly within diagnostic criteria of needing uh, conservatorship. And it, maybe it's one of the functions as we're just 
tending to live longer. So maybe our bodies are outliving our brains a little bit. But it's one of these things that I think there are certain people that don't understand if you don't plan for the long term, like many adults now, my mom was one that sort of inspired everybody in my family to get long-term care insurance. You know, this really fantastic, very low-cost insurance that is for when you get mentally disabled through Alzheimer's, and hopefully nobody will have to use it. But in our case, my mom needed it, and it paid for all of her assisted living. I mean, it was just this amazing thing that would have cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars if she had not invested in it. So, um, yeah, I mean, and once again, that's, those are for people who understand that and researched and then have the funds to do it. And unfortunately there are a lot of people that don't have the funds to do it and don't even have the time to go research it. It's not even really on their, you know, sort of in their purview. uh, Right. Right. So can I ask you, what is, um, how do you define your role when you go to testify in one of these hearings? Because are you doing the evaluation of the person? Are you testifying to how, like as a representative of the responding mental health community and how much, uh, I don't want to say burden, but how much they are utilizing resources? Yes. So not the first, not going, I'm not going in as an expert witness. I'm going in as a, a like a testimony witness who you can say, I have had the opportunity to interact with this person several times. I had the opportunity to sit down with them and attempt to conduct an evaluation. These were the problems. And then I'll, you know, I can get cross-examined by attorneys because the defense attorneys are very serious about keeping their clients off of conservatorship. In fact, that's that's been problematic too, where this this attorney that I have kind of ongoing problems with, their perspective is I'm gonna do whatever my client wants me to do. And I, I mean, I've had an argument with this person in the middle of, of the hall of the courts going, Are you kidding me? Like this person they're going to jump off their balcony. And right. this person's perspective is, I believe that my per, my client has advocacy and can advocate for themselves, and I'm going to support that. So, I mean, I, I kind of have admiration for this attorney in that sense, but boy, it's frustrating to have that yeah. conversation. Yeah. So people like that have these conservatorships, they can live with family. And if the person that is being conserved is willing to cooperate and is non-problematic in that way, that, that's great. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen that way, and especially for someone who maybe falls in sort of the mood disorder spectrum, like maybe bipolar disorders, like you were talking about, and they have maybe severe manic states where they get very grandiose and irritable and start becoming very, very impulsive. Those type of people tend to really turn on their family members and really see their family members as uh, trying to impede their lifestyle and their choices, which of course they are. And hopefully the family is doing it with a sense of wanting to protect their loved one. But there are going to be cases maybe where that's not always true. Um, there's also group homes and assisted living situations where people can live on conservatorships. But like living with family, all three of these examples, the individual can get up and walk out the door. So yeah. Are you really in charge of the person? Because you might be able to be in charge of making the legal decisions for their care, but can you actually put hands on that person? You're not supposed to put hands on that person because you're not supposed to put hands on anybody. 
Right. You're not, you're really not supposed to. And we know that that's a big deal in California is like, you can be in an argument with someone, like if you're in a domestic situation and you're having an argument with your significant other and they attempt to leave the room, you cannot put your arm across the door to keep them from leaving. That is against the law. You're not allowed to do that. And I don't think people really understand that as being a part of the conservatorship process too, is that the only place that can keep them locked is a locked facility, which would be a psychiatric hospital or a state hospital or what we call an intermediary IMD bed. So we have like you could go from the private or the county hospital where the hold has been instigated and then you wait for an available bed. And when the bed is available, then you can transition to the IMD. And there's a whole other podcast that we could do, which I think maybe a couple of other podcasts have already done a better job on this, concentrating on the lack of state hospitals across the country. Because back in the 80s, the entire country started shutting down um, based on the California model when Reagan was trying to save money. And I mean, he did it for the wrong reasons, but they did, the state hospitals really cost a huge, huge amount of money because they were run so poorly. So unfortunately now we've got no place to put people and you have like, sometimes you'll have someone who's on a conservatorship and they're in the hospital in the psych ward for up to a year, year and a half waiting on a bed. Yeah. Oh, waiting for a bed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And when we say a bed, we mean like a room, like even a private room or a shared room with other individuals who were on a psychiatric LPS hold. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for all of that. It's a lot. <laughs> it it's is a lot. lot. But I, I think that's what people want to know about. What does this actually mean? And I know we're just covering one state, but hopefully it gives you a good overview of, of conservatorships. All right, Dr. Scott, what is your relationship with Brit Brit? I know you said you're not part of the, the big fandom. But thoughts? Um, uh, I think she is incredibly talented, and I think she has a great instrument. I think she's an incredible dancer. And not only is she an incredible dancer, but like especially at her prime, her the choreography that she was doing was so specific to a particular genre of genre of pop music at the time that it was just in it, there could not be a more perfect combination of lyrics beat and choreography for her age range i think it was just like from an artistic standpoint aesthetic standpoint it was really really amazing i've heard her on like mtv and unplugged years ago and it was a disaster it sounded awful but she's not all electronic she's had a great voice since she was on was it star search i think she was on star search yeah and then mickey mouse club yeah Yeah. Yeah. So she really hit the scene in 1998, which for me was two years after I graduated from high school. So (laughs) I was a little like, um, why do I like her music so much? I'm not a 14 year old teenager. And then I was like, justify it. I'm like, well, I'm a dancer and this music is very conducive to choreographing routines and things like that. So um, I I loved her from the second that she came out. Um, and obviously she was a, a, a package with all of what you were talking about, like the lyrics, the voice, the dance moves, the, the visual aesthetics, the 
live performances, you know, the video music awards and, and things like that. And then I did many moons later in 2009, uh, saw her in concert with another female police officer that I worked with and my sister and her friend. And we just had like the best time ever. (laughs) But I do look back on that because as I'm going through Brittany's timeline, I'm like, oh my God, like where was she at at this point in her life when here we were just enjoying her concert, but an immensely talented little kid, a huge work ethic, uh, came from very modest means. I mean, her parents couldn't even afford plane tickets to go to auditions in New York. They took the train and then like seven of them shared one hotel room, but she did land the the Mickey Mouse Club gig. Unfortunately, it only lasted a year. That whole season that like she and Christina and Justin, wasn't Ryan Gosling on it? Someone else? That only lasted a year. So it was kind of like she she felt like she hit her stardom and was finally getting recognized for all her talent. And then it was taken away. But she kept plugging along. I mean, it was her initiative where she called a talent agent and was like, hey, do you remember me? What do you got for me? And he was like, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a song. You record it. And she did that. And he said, oh, my God, this sounds great. I'm going to have you go record with a real producer. And then she landed a record deal out of that. So, you know, her initiative was um, she just really wanted to be a star. And she did this little mall tour to like, because nobody knew who she was to promote this album. And it just blew up after that, especially after the Baby One More Time video hit MTV. Now, there's been lots of drama in Britney's life with relationships, marriages, people kind of hangers on taking advantage of her stuff that I'm not really going to cover, but I want to focus on the stressors for her, the mental health decline, and then her her rights getting taken away and what that has kind of looked like. So I felt like it was very jumbled and messy for me uh, because this has been a, a very long time. I mean, this has been a huge time period. You already mentioned the paparazzi frenzy and just how absolutely insane none of us can even fathom what it's like. And that really started right after that infamous Rolling Stone magazine, her very first cover right after her album came out, which speaks to from that moment, how we've treated Britney as just a piece of meat. And the story with that cover is that basically the photographer she was showing him around her little hometown in Louisiana and here's the town square and here's the park. And he took pictures of her different places, came back to their home and he goes into her bedroom with her, closes the door, the family's outside. And then mom finally comes in and Brittany's in her bra and underwear laying on her bed with toys all around her. She's still under 18. And that's the photo that ends up on the front of Rolling Stone magazine. So just you know, from the very get-go, how she's being taken advantage of by the industry. Very disturbing, but it is And also who gets blamed for that? She does. Oh, sure. I mean, that's that's something that also is incredibly disturbing in watching the New York Times uh, episode of that documentary is, and I think, look, there's a lot of people complicit. There are a lot of entities complicit, but you look back at Ann Curry and Matt Lauer and all of these talking heads at, at TMZ, well, it was pre-TMZ, I think, at that time. But, you know, just calling this young woman horrible names. Oh, yeah. She like was a Lolita after that. they completely slut-shamed her 
completely. And it was just ridiculous. And I think that also maybe we're living in a different time where now we're aware of it. I mean, I certainly, I, you know, I just didn't care for her that much. I wasn't like that huge of a fan. I was like, Oh, all this drama, all this drama. And now looking at it through a more mature lens, you just look at, I think she was incredibly, I, I think every one of those news anchors owes her an apology. Absolutely. The, just the, the questions that they would ask her, you know, it's just, it's, it's horrific. And then there's also like this. How other... can you ask a young woman, like asking a young woman, if you're a virgin. And that was from the Appalling. first time. It looks like the first time that was asked, it was by a German uh, journalist. And yeah, she handled it very, she handled it very well. I don't know if she was being truthful. It's none of my fucking business, whether she was being truthful or not. It's nobody's fucking business. But how dare you put a young person on the spot like that, whether they're male or female or anything else? Like, don't ask that question. It's none of your fucking business. What does it have to do with her job? Exactly. <laughs> she is. She does not belong to us. You know, it's... It, I it think was. that's the problem, though, is that we do think that celebrities and stars belong to us. I sure. mean, there's a part of it that, like, yes... Some of the people that are in these positions inspire us. And many young people that are huge fans of hers talk about how her music got them through a hard time. So I understand. I, I yeah. completely understand. And that's wonderful. But she as a person does not belong to you. She right. as an inspiration can belong to you, but not her as a person. Well, and she certainly doesn't, you know, she might feel that she owes something to her fans, you know, for that connectedness. But she certainly doesn't owe some foreign news anchor anything to answer a question like no. that. You know, he, I'm pretty sure he's not like part of the fandom that wants to know every single detail. He's just trying to be salacious. And, and here we are talking about it in 2021. Right, so. exactly. But there's also, after after lots of years, there's like this twisted relationship closeness that comes with the paparazzi that I think only, only in Los Angeles, for one, but also someone who has hounded for years to where they're changing tires for her. They're pumping her gas. She's asking them for directions because they're just always there. And it's... It, I think in framing Britney, it, it's very disturbing when one of um, the paparazzis are interviewed and he's just talking about like this twisted relationship and that they really did care about her. Anyway, I'm going to get riled up. We're going to talk about that. I, yeah, like I, he, I, that makes me so angry. Yeah. We need to move on. <laughs> so she, yeah, I know. Right. But she's wildly successful. She finds love and marriage, has a couple of kids. That marriage doesn't last beyond a couple of years. Um, but I want to bring us to 2007 because this to me felt like the, the point where things start to go from total rise to stardom to problematic. Um, this is the year that she splits from her husband, Kevin. She He started to pursue his own heavy air quote music career. And she just felt very abandoned by him that he went out and started doing his own thing while she's got these two little ones. Uh, they end up getting shared custody of the kids. And so half the time she has her kids, half the time she doesn't. And the time that she doesn't, she's left in this home all by herself, not a huge 
social support circle and she starts hitting the clubs with her assistant who is kind of seems to be one of her only real friends. This is kind of that era in which the infamous outing and pictures by the paparazzi of her and Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan out partying together. And of course, then the media just like every awful name that they could say about these three young girls just out doing what everybody else is doing at that age. But when this partying behavior, I guess I can say, starts, her attorney starts to suspect that she might be using drugs. And he strongly suggests basically force her into rehab to just say like, you got to like clean up and just get right back on track. Her parents are also in on this and think it's a good idea. So she flies out to some rehab in like the Bahamas somewhere or something, but she's within the first 24 hours, she's on a plane home. It's like not for her. She gets home. She, you know, she can't just go for a walk or go for a drive to clear her mind on her own. She's got to get in the car with her driver, always having security around and they're driving around and she sees a hair salon and says, pull over. She walks into the hair salon, says, I want you to shave my head. And the girl tries to talk her out of it. Basically is like, uh, let's rethink this. You might feel different tomorrow. Brittany grabs the shears and starts doing it herself and just shaves her head. Paparazzi, of course, completely glued to the outside window. And Brittany then looks at herself in the mirror and starts sobbing. She said, my mom is going to kill me. My mom's going to be so mad. She then leaves, walks next door to the tattoo salon or tattoo parlor and says, I want a tattoo. And they're just like shocked. Here's Britney Spears bald standing in our tattoo shop. And um, she said about her hair, she kind of notices, obviously, if they're looking at her hair and she goes, I'm just so tired of everyone touching me. I don't want anyone to touch me anymore. And, and, and when I was watching an old documentary that she did, um, you know, you think about everyone's always constantly prepping her hair and putting her makeup and putting it back and, you know, doing all of this. It was just so, so symbolic and so sad. So following this, she ends up going back to rehab at the urging of her father, Jamie. And it's probably more of a mental health crisis at this point. I don't know that it's an addiction issue or a rehab issue, but she goes back into rehab. As soon as she gets in, she learns that Kevin has filed a, an emergency hearing at court for custody. So what does she do? She checks out, she leaves, she goes to confront Kevin at his house about this, you know, whatever's said to each other. She goes to leave. The paparazzi are swarming her. She's with her cousin who picked her up from rehab. They pull over to the gas station to go get gas. And this is what, like, she's just sitting in the passenger seat of her cousin's little car. They're just trying to get gas. And the paparazzi flashes in her face. Hey, Brittany, are you okay? We're concerned about you. Like, I just want to scream fuck off to all of them as I'm watching this. It's awful. Um, it's horrible. I, I, yeah. I had such a reaction to that. And I can't even watch the whole thing, to be honest. And that that paparazzi that, you know, now he's being interviewed and I guess he does something else. And he really makes an attempt to come off of like, I used to do that and we were really invasive but we had this relationship with her and I was asking if she was okay. And all I can say is, and I, I, I respect, <laughs> I respect everybody's spiritual and religious belief system. I'm just going to use a phrase from my growing up that I don't like, dude, you need to get right with God. 
Right. Uh, seriously. <laughs> I mean, and whatever your God is, if your God is nothing but like moral objectivism, like that was objectively an immoral act to engage Absolutely. in the abuse and manipulation of this young woman, regardless of her mental health status, regardless of any other status. It's just wrong. And and I mean, I'm I'm flaming on him. But there's, you know, a thousand others. If he was to drop, there'd be a thousand others. And it's just a really, it's a really icky business. It It turns my stomach. And it's all for a paycheck. And I cannot believe that so much money is paid for a single image. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care about tabloid stuff. I'm not. But it's a huge buying, industry. Yeah, I'm not buying that at the market. I guess someone is, but um, it is a huge industry. But this is the situation where she just gets so infuriated that this is where she takes the umbrella, gets out of the car, and starts whacking the car that the paparazzi are in. And of course, it's all every single moment is a snapshot, right? Brittany with the bald head, angry, beating a car with an umbrella. And I remember seeing that at the time, thinking. Wow, she must be doing a lot of drugs. Yeah. Oh, you know, I just was, like yeah. just having this like real, and of course, my because you know had friends that were in and out of recovery. When she shaved her head, I immediately thought, "Oh, she's she's shaving her head to get rid of the in, the evidence because they can do a tox screen on hair to see if you've been using substances." And now I don't believe that at all. Now I just no. believe that she was pushed to the edge and. And I don't even, I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily say that that was like, if I was going to make any kind of diagnostic considerations, I wouldn't, I think anybody in that position could have had a break acting like that. That doesn't mean that she has any form of bipolar or whatever in that she could, I don't know. But in that moment, everybody, anybody would have been pushed to the limit. And she's also like, she's a child of entertainment. Part of her job is being in front of people from a very early age. So growing up in that environment and trying to manage this gray space of safety for yourself emotionally is so much harder than anybody can possibly imagine unless you're in it. If you are not in it, you can't know how hard it is, which is why I understand she would hang out with Lindsay Lohan and, and Paris Hilton. And, you know, maybe that wasn't the greatest milieu, but like, Certainly, Lindsay Lohan could understand it, who had been a child star since she was like eight, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you and I always talk about like what what a key time that is for developing development and finding your sense of self and individuation and all of that. And who the hell are you if you have just been a starlet, a performer to that magnitude? So it's a lot. But so this after that happens. The divorce settlement finally um, shakes out. They have 50-50 custody at this point. And then we have what was supposed to sort of be her comeback performance was the VMAs of that year, which was just tragic. Um, I remember watching it live and I'm like, is this supposed to be happening or what is happening? But basically, you know, she had worked her ass off for weeks perfecting the routines, working with the choreographers and everyone and goes out and and does party the night before, completely sleeps in, gets to the dressing room hungover and then 
there's a bottle of tequila to kind of take the edge off for her. And it, it looks like she's drunk during this performance. I mean, it's just, it, it, I, it's like you're waiting for her to like hurl in the middle of flipping her hair over. And, and okay. And I'm, I, I'm not going to say that that's the optimum way to run your career because clearly it's not. However, that happened at a time and in her level of stardom where she was just completely commoditized to the rest of the world, there's been plenty of other celebrities and stars and singers throughout the history of entertainment that have done things like that. Elvis used to pull that crap all the time oh, at sure. the end of his career. Yeah. Um, some other, some very famous rock stars, but like, I don't think that they got the level of scrutiny that she did. Now, sure. the other thing on the other side of it is that you have to go to extreme ends in the legal system to get kids taken away from their mom. Yep. So yep. I'm not, I, but that's not saying that there wasn't some deviousness or strategic planning on the part of individuals involved in that legal movement to make that happen. But let me tell you, that is not an easy thing to do at all. If it was easy, like there would be plenty of people with their kids taken away. Yes. Yes. That, that's a really interesting topic too, because I think it's almost um, so difficult that we don't take kids away from moms that might, you know, should be better off with dads <laughs> just because they, they happen to be men. And there's this trope of that they're always going to be better off with the moms. Right. Um, That's a problem. (laughs) So let's go to 2008. The following year, she does end up losing custody of the kids. And we see her get 51-50 twice in one month. So we already reviewed what 51-50 is. She's on an involuntary, involuntary hold two times. And this is the first time where the parents file for a temporary conservatorship when she is in this month that she's being 5150'd. Um, so they go to court while Brittany's hospitalized. Her, her dad shows up with his attorney to say, we want this conservatorship. And Brittany hires an attorney, a very experienced attorney that has a lot of experience in these types of areas to show up for her. And what does the judge do? The judge grants the conservatorship and says, hey, Brittany's attorney, she actually doesn't have the capacity to hire you, so you can't be here. Goodbye. You're, you're fired. <laughs> yeah, his name is Andrew Streisand, and he comes yep. off very well in the documentary. Don't know him personally, don't know him professionally, don't know anything about him. I'm just saying that I want to make two observations. He comes off very well, very reasoned in the documentary, and that is almost unheard of for a judge to be able to look at an attorney and say that she's not capable of making, like that in itself is a whole process called competency. So at and least- And she was hospitalized and she got an attorney there. I don't know if I could get an attorney there if I wasn't hospitalized. Ex- exactly. And that's, that's something he's alluding to. And I feel like he's actually being very careful about how he communicates. But yeah. that's a very important point that I think everybody should understand is that there is a- process called competency that is separate from all of the other legal proceedings. And competency means that you understand the process. So the idea that this judge could disallow her having an attorney, especially someone, this is not some like rube with a shingle out on, you know, 
Main Street, downtown LA or something like this. No, this is a real attorney with real experience. He knows what he's talking about. Right, right. So that, as far as like the, the fans that are conspiracy theorists, that's the one thing that makes me really uncomfortable about, well, it's, there's several un- things yeah. uncomfortable about this particular story. But that proceeding, it makes me uncomfortable. But that being said, judges do dumbass stuff all the time. True. You know, one this- of the things that's frustrating about going to mental health court is because there is a turnover of judges. And if you work in the mental health court, in your, like I was you know, going every couple of months, and you establish a relationship with judges, and they're like, oh, Dr. Scott's coming back. I know he knows his stuff, and I trust this person. So you build a rapport, and then they move on. Oh, it great. is incredibly frustrating. Is it like the training ground for judges? I don't know. I mean, it's certainly, there's been all ages, but it's like, I like of all places, this should be the place for judges that want to do this for a long time. Yeah. Like yeah. this should be something that judges want to do because they have a passion for this particular aspect of protecting people with mental illness. Right, right. Well, and so this is just the first, you know, mention or placement of a conservatorship, and it's just supposed to be temporary, but her dad ends up having control over all the big legal and financial decisions, but also her daily functioning decisions, where she can go, who she can see, all of that stuff we talked about. And again, we don't know I've never seen any legal document or official document with a a mental health diagnosis for Brittany, but we do know that she is sort of categorized under the gravely disabled part. She's released after a week in the hospital on this day. She immediately goes and visits her business manager and attorney, the Mr. Streisand that she tried to hire to say like, what, what can I do here? And both of them are like, you're stuck. I'm sorry. Like, this is the ruling. You you cannot hire us. So she can no longer make any of these decisions. She can't even hire a doctor to evaluate her to overturn this decision. Yeah, see, that's that's something else that's particularly disturbing because Vivian Thorine, I think it's Vivian Thorine is the other attorney that is interviewed for this. She comes off very professional, very well put together, but she makes a statement that she's never seen a successful challenge to a conservatorship. And I'm yelling, I was watching it as I was on the elliptical at the gym and I was yelling, what the fuck? Where have you been, lady? People, People challenge them all the time. We have one, we have a chronic person who is a, a major danger to the community. Mm-hmm. and successfully gets out all the time. We're constantly having to put this individual back under conservatorship. Ugh. So there are revolving door situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ah. And you always have the, like, and that, like not being able to hire someone, that's some, I don't know how they managed to do that because someone could have easily have come forward and said, well, I'm doing it pro bono. I'm doing it on her behalf. Sure. You sure. Know? So yeah. something that's a part also that I don't understand. I don't think they're getting the whole story. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So as part of this, uh, her dad moves in, he changes the locks, hires a new staff, hires new security. He is totally running her life. And then the most notable thing, what does he do? 
day, he puts her back to work making a new album. Gravely Disabled? Question mark, question mark, question mark. This And this is where I am really uncomfortable. And I think this and, is actually yeah. where the Free Britney movement has actually real validity to their sure. argument is like, if this person is so gravely disabled, then why are you using them as a dog and a multi-million dollar dog and pony show? Yeah. And hey, this is, you know, maybe it's manageable to get Britney in that studio and have her sing. Um, but this is a good album. The following year at the Video Music Awards, MTV VMAs, she sweeps every one of her categories for her video that comes out for this album. It's like, oh my gosh, this might actually be a comeback for Britney. She gets 50-50 custody of her kids back, which is a win for her. But the conservatorship, conservative, see, I knew I was going to do it. The conservatorship ends up as permanent or indefinite as, as, as it can be. Um, but it's not supposed state. to be. Conservatorships are supposed to be reviewed. There is the potential for treatment and restoration in many cases. So I don't understand why that was made permanent. I don't know either. And so this is a really interesting point in time because actually from the day of those VMAs for um, two months, Brittany, and again, I'm confused, Brittany wants a film crew to follow her around. So her dad must have signed off on that, right? Um, he's living in the home with her, but there's a MTV documentary made and it's called Britney for the Record. And I think it's better than Framing Britney because it's sit down with her. No question is off limits. She's very transparent with it. But also, I remember seeing this back then and thinking, God, she is so sad. Like, right. She's she so was sad. She's, she's prepping for her world tour. Okay, one thing, get in the studio. But now it's time for the circus world tour, which is the, the concert that I saw. And you're seeing all the behind the scenes. The only time she's happy and in her element is when she's in the studio dancing and she's learning the routines and she's working with the dancers. She just looks like herself, but there's all these people surrounding her and she's just so lonely and sad. Yeah, it's just very telling because you get to see it from Brittany rather than hearing from all these people. Well, I think that there's also some things, a couple of points of note that need to be illuminated. One thing that Andrew uh, Streisand said was that in during the court proceedings, the phrase was used, or he used the phrase, that she's a high-functioning conservative, mm. which, like, what does that mean? I mean, he even asked, what does that mean? Because the whole idea of a conservatorship is someone who is lower-functioning and unable to make decisions for themselves. So that's where it gets very wonky about her civil rights. Right. She has the right. And like, like, again, I'm not saying what diagnoses. I don't know if there is a diagnosis. I don't know. All I'm saying is, is that you actually, it's not against the law to be mentally ill. No shit. In this country. It's not against the law to face the consequences of your decisions unless they break laws that are in place. So this is where things are really starting to get wonky, in particular because Andrew points out that this was a, the in the court proceedings, it's now named as a conservatorship business model. 
what the fuck does that mean? That's terrifying. Are we setting precedents now in court? Exactly. For exactly. Ugh. So because she's a cash cow, right. we're just going to keep doing this, but we're going to, and then there are other things that like that came out. Like if you go on the gossip pages where they talk anonymously to some of her former dancers, like everybody really liked her. They were really concerned about her. And they would note they were they were given specific rules to never tell her that they were going out to party. They were told to tell her, oh, no, we're just going back to the hotel room. and We're going to relax. Yeah. So that she would not want to go out with them. And it's like you, what you say, you said it earlier. It's like you're putting the, play, the person into a child state. This is what they're doing. They're keeping her right. in this very, very, very contained world. It's so problematic. And it's yeah. such a gray area because what if she does have something that's a, con a significant impulse control issue or a diagnosis and suddenly she's given all this freedom? Does that mean that she's free to engage in things that are going to significantly reduce the quality of her life? It could. Right. You know, do you want to be on the do you want to be on the responsible end of like, I want her to be free to make so many bad decisions that she but then maybe that's what we have to do. Maybe it is her right to make these decisions. Exactly. You know, I, and that, that is so creepy to hear the term high functioning conservatee. Right. No, she might be a low functioning normal person. You know, that's she doesn't, point. she doesn't step over into that category of conservatee and be at like the top cream of the crop of conservatees. She's just a normal person with horrific stress that probably has some bad decision making and whatever. Thank you. Thank you though. You're talking I mean, about the high level of stress because look, for all the people that I have evaluated that have gone on to be under conservatorship, I'm telling you not a single one of them can hold a conversation like she holds or answer questions in the way she answers them while she's being conserved, while she is under conservatorship. She is linear, she is oriented, she is organized in her thoughts, in her speech, in her affect, everything She's is with... doing a world tour. Exactly. <laughs> and she did it amazingly. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Um, so she does this world tour. I think it does afford her a little bit of freedom. But like you said, there are a lot of parameters. Her dad made um, all of the crew sign agreements that they would not bring drugs or alcohol around her. But some of them were like, bye, like, I'm not going to be on this world tour if I can't drink, you know, which so be it. Okay, whatever. But she ends up actually in 2009 doing this world tour. And then she meets a guy who is a talent agent at her agency and Jason Tradwick and gets engaged to him. She files for him to be co-conservator and the judge grants it. So the judge grants for him to see the little daily life stuff while dad's still taking care of and overseeing the big stuff. But that doesn't last terribly long. And, you know, they were together for a few years, but they call off the engagement. He is no longer interested in being her conservator, not really interested in starting, you know, more of a family than Brittany already has. Everything goes back to dad at that point. And in the next two years, between 2013 and 2015, Two more albums get made. She gets her first residency in Vegas, which is wildly successful at Planet Hollywood and kind of stays out of the press. You know, there, there's 
they got dad's daddy's got her locked down pretty good just work in vegas i think which vegas is an interesting choice i guess it's the only real place doing residencies like that but talk about temptations if you're so concerned about your daughter partying too much she she stays very very low key and then fast forward a bit to 2018 so this marks 10 years that she would be under conservatorship she goes on another world tour and then books another residency in Vegas. And this is kind of the time when there's kind of this second quick decline that is now the more present what's going on and what has really fueled this hashtag free Britney movement. So in January of 2019, on Instagram, she posts a picture of her and her parents when, you know, her when she's a little girl and her parents and basically says, I'm not going to do my residency in Vegas. I have to take time off because my daddy is ill. He's not doing so well. People are like, wait, what? Like, we didn't know your dad was sick. Not that, again, not that we get to know everything about these people's private lives, but there was no indication of any of that. And it was just absolutely came out of nowhere. And then... Quickly after that, there was an attorney who was sort of at, at different periods of time, co-conservator with Jamie Spears. He, he goes to the court and it says, I don't want to be co-conservator anymore. Immediately, like, let me go. I don't want to be a part of this. And then it is absolutely just Jamie. Interestingly, very soon after this, she, quote unquote, voluntarily gets checked into a mental health facility. And the rumors are that she was there much longer than anyone in the public knows about, which is fine. And but wasn't, it, that, wasn't that based on the lack of activity on her Instagram? Yes. And then there was, there's a podcast called Britney's Gram, which is yeah. the one that kind of started the, the free Britney movement, right? So when she put out this, this announcement that she wasn't doing her tour, they, that podcast actually got like a, a anonymous voicemail from someone that said he was part of like a legal team, yeah. a paralegal. And said that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, give, I, like, I, I hold, I give it no water. Cause like, I'm sorry, if you can't prove it or back it up, it could be nothing. So, yeah. um, but basically he said like, oh, she's been in a mental health facility against her will for much longer than we know. So anyway, this, the podcast, Britney's Graham, they were just following Britney's Instagram and reporting on it. That was kind of their, their shtick and their podcast. In a nice and, way. Oh, totally. I as thought she, like that was Uber one of the fans. things. Yeah, they were Uber fans. They're very sweet. At first, you know, when I, because I wasn't aware of this and, and watching the documentary when they talk about like our job, we were just going to dissect everything on her Instagram, which is a great idea. Sure. But then even the MTV host, I'm blanking on his name. He's probably my age and he's an older. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but he, they were, he had a great observation that, you know, there's just so much scrutiny. And there's so much scrutiny and everybody kind of interpreting things that, it, of course, there are conspiracy theories and all sorts of wrong information that's going to get in, in that mix. And yeah. that's where I liked that the, the Graham girls are actually really careful about that. But there's a lot of people out there that aren't, one of whom, another person that's pretty odious is um, Perez Hilton, who's basically made an entire career out of, you know, yeah. just... He's a bottom being finger. horrible to people. Yeah. 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 So this, this is when all of this begins where people are, and again, with like the advent of these very personal types of social media, fans can be very in tune and involved if the celebrity is doing their own content creation. Right. I mean, it's what you're doing on a daily basis and how you're feeling and, and all of this information. 
I have to say, I mean, her, her Instagram is very bizarre. In a way, I'm like, girl, you do you. You dance in front of a camera. You wear what you want to wear. I don't care. <laughs> but there are, there's a lot of dancing. There's a lot of outfit changes. There's like an all white room that kind of looks like, I don't know, a lot of 80s rocker hair, a lot of chokers. I'm not a necklace choker person. They just creep me out. <laughs> she wears a lot of those. <laughs> but also like lots of rocking. Like when she talks, there's a lot of like self-soothing back and forth rocking, which is just something I take notice of. No, I... I look, mental health professional. Right. And I think that, that that is notable. What I find interesting is there are a couple of, you know, certainly she's a great pop dancer, but people forget that she actually has great dance training. Like she's really yep. a trained dancer. There's a couple of video clips where she's doing chenets and chenets are, um, it's a ballet term meaning uh, chain. And you, you do a succession of very quick turns with your feet very close together. So you're taking tiny step turn, tiny step turn, tiny step turn. And not only are you doing that, your body has to whip around at the right time in opposition to your head so that you don't lose your balance. And she's doing them perfectly. She is on point. Those head whips are just... Perfectly with perfect. that big old head of hair just whipping yep. around, but she's doing it great. So, you know, once again, interestingly enough, a lot of people with more significant levels of mental illness generally do have sort of not the greatest coordination physically. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly not what's going on for her. But yes, I agree with you. I've seen those some of those rocking things when she's speaking and it does look like a little bit of self-soothing and and there's also like the really heavy eye makeup like it's a lot of yeah. a lot of black underliner which is a, mm -hmm. an interesting choice but once again here I am making some kind of assumption maybe that's just what she likes so what maybe. the fuck let's leave it alone I know. And, you know, people are like, she trying to send messages. Is there coding going on? You know, because she'll just send a picture of a red refrigerator or, you know, cherries or people, people are going crazy. Like, what is Brittany trying to tell us? Is she being drugged? Well, is she being held against her will? Are we supposed it, to? It, it could be. And some of the things I think are quite poetic. Like she had in, in the documentary, they show that she's taken a picture of like the ruins of a sort of a castle door looking out over the ocean. It's mm -hmm. a really beautiful photo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she does, at least in a handful of these postings, use the word freedom. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's what a lot of people are interpreting, which, you know, that she is yearning for freedom. She's trying to send a message. She wants to be free. That, I don't think that that's too far-fetched at all. But I would also say that in my experience, when I've seen, you know, when this is a, uh, in, in our jobs, we do look at everything forensically. We look at social media posts and we look at their presence online and what they're doing. And sometimes when you do see like sort of a stream of individual objects that don't really have a contextual meaning, that indicates sort of the person's mental state, that they are for some reason that red refrigerator door is very interesting to them yes. when it's actually actually quite innocuous. Like, what is that? I admire people that understand art. So maybe she finds some sort of artistic interpretation in looking at a red refrigerator door. It, have, it has meaning for her, but it may not have for me. Exactly. You know what I was going to say is her Instagram 
is probably what all of ours would look like if we weren't so damn preoccupied with curating our lives Yes, and just filming us being goofy or, hey, here's this cool new dance move or here's this outfit that looks my, makes my, you know, 40-year-old stomach look amazing. Like, <laughs> let me Which, just put it the out way, there. Which, by is, is impressive. A... <laughs> like, is incredibly, her, her, her physique is really two kids. impressive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but it's it's interesting to look through and read through. There's a lot of emojis. But in May of 2019, Brittany and her mom attended a court hearing together. So her mom has really never had any legal or official standing with the conservatorship, but she attends with Brittany to a court hearing where Brittany does get to address the court and the judge orders a mental health evaluation, like sort of a a separate unbiased mental health eval. I honestly could not find what happened of that. The deadline, there was supposed to be some sort of deadline later in the fall that kind of came and went and her dad is still the conservator. But in 2019, later that year, what did happen is that Kevin Federline filed a restraining order against Jamie after there was an altercation between him and their oldest boy, Sean Preston, who was 13 at the time. Some sort of physical altercation happened. Kevin tries to file charges actually with the sheriff's department, but there's not enough for the DA to file. And Jamie steps down from the daily duties, the daily overseeing of the conservatorship, and a professional is hired to do that. And he still has, you know, of course, he's never going to let go of the money ties. But unfortunately, this ends up costing Brittany some custody rights. So Kevin gets them 70% of the time. She gets them 30% of the time as a result of this happening at a family gathering where she was at. Not that it was her fault. So the latest is that November of 2020, she filed to have her dad removed for good. And there is a court hearing June 23rd, just in a month, where she is requesting to address the court herself. Last November, is when a judge refused to remove Jamie Spears as conservator. However, there is also this independent person that is still overseeing part of the conservatorship that's part of a a firm called the Bessemer Trust. So we shall see what happens with these this new court date coming up. Every time there's a court date out here in LA, I mean, the Free Britney people are out there with their signs and outside of court supporting her in every way that they can. But I just really want there to be a healthy version of Brittany, you know, whether she wants to go away and be a mom and live her life, or if she's going to be a version of what we have with JLo in 10 years, you know, I just want her to be healthy. That's all I really care about at this point. Yeah. Well, I want that for everybody. And I guess what I would say to the people that are sort of concrete in their pursuit of her freedom, whatever that means, that term freedom, whatever that means, I would say, be careful what you wish for. I want her to prosper and be healthy as well. And I want the best for her. And I would want to challenge people that are so wrapped up in this case to consider a couple of things. One is if you care so much about her and her freedoms, then you really need to take a really hard look at the world around you and advocate for destigmatizing mental health issues such as conservatorship and help foster a healthy conversation about it. Right. Because this is a case that does not represent the majority of conservatorship cases. 
And if you care about Brittany, then you should really be caring about your other fellow citizens who aren't rich and talented and pretty and performing for your pleasure. Right. And I, I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying that like we're all responsible for not just saying that in this case, in this particular time, because I'm interested in it, that makes it important. No, it's important all over. The other point I'd make is, would you feel this way if there was clear evidence that this person was not able to take care of themselves in a healthy, sustained manner, and there wasn't this much money involved. And what yeah. I'm asking people to do is ask hard questions of themselves. And I don't Those think- Those are that... huge variables. Right. And, you know, I really wanted to go see her in Vegas when she was there. Hindsight, I'm so glad that I didn't. I didn't contribute to, you know, her being a workhorse for whomever's paycheck. If she truly- has the struggles that rise to the level of needing conservatorship. I want the people overseeing that to be empathetic professionals yes, where yes. there's not these blurry boundaries of family that really have her best interest in heart at heart. And, you know, I really think there should be a system with whether young stars or celebrities altogether, where there is, and I don't know if a system, but something in place where there are mental health services and opportunities where it's not stigmatized, where it can start early before the shit hits the fan and these kids are having these mental health crises. You know, if if they're if they work so if there's like maybe, hey, let's work this many hours a day, and then we have art therapy in the afternoon. <laughs> you know, and, and she says in one of her documentaries, like hey, it's not, therapy isn't always just like sitting down and talking to someone. For me, dancing is therapy. But if there could be this, it, again, like going back to destigmatizing mental health to where people are going in and especially with the kids, I mean, that are yeah, involved yeah. in show business, let's get them working with someone on how to develop some coping skills. Absolutely. So we have a lot of rules in place for child labor laws and people, kids that work, you know, in television and film, you can only work X amount of hours per day, depending on how old you are. There has to be a tutor on set so that you get your education for this amount of time. I think having therapy time or therapy, we could call it therapeutic time. So it doesn't have to mean that like a mental health clinician is there, but someone that else is there that is sort of, you know, a coach or a mentor or an advocate that helps them do something that is de-escalating and emotionally and mentally supportive. You know, one thing that she says, like you were saying in the documentary, she says, well, dancing is my therapy, which I think is great. But that's like, really, that's the tool you use all the time. You got to have other tools because yeah. you can't always just stand up and, and dance your anxiety away or dance your depression away. Sometimes right. you can, but you have to have other tools in your toolbox and that include journaling or talking to a friend or meditating or yoga, you know, you can't just have one thing that is your go-to because that's not a full and profound way to address all of your emotional needs. And one thing that I know you and I both want to emphasize about this is that in, as with any form of mental health challenge, stress is the enemy and stress is always going to be a trigger for 
sometimes not the best of ourselves to come out. And certainly the entire world is feeling it now. I mean, there's certainly like higher levels of the emergence of OCD and agoraphobia happening right now as the world is opening up in America for people to go out free of, of uh, quarantine restrictions because we're getting vaccinated and, and the economy's opening up. But guess what's happening? All the therapists in town are booked solid yep. because people are falling apart. The, Everything. The stress of it. Eating disorders are on Everything. the rise. Yeah. It's, it's um, we're starting to see it. Do you remember we long time ago when the pandemic started, we were like, what will be the result of this? And we're just yeah. seeing like first wave stuff, I think. So if it's happening with people who have no previous history of mental health issues, think about someone like Brittany, not saying she has a history because I don't know what her history is, but I can clearly say that she has had a stressful life. Sure. Because that level of stress and responsibility in carrying a whole brand on your back for almost 20 years now, that's really significant. Well, actually, it's more than 20 years because she's been doing it for more than 20 years. Right. That's a lot of stress. And stress is the enemy and stress triggers, you know, any host of things. It can activate. Like maybe she has a predisposition for something that emerged due to this stress. We don't know. Right. Right. So. You know, wrapping up, we were going to go into several other examples of, of celebrities that have been placed on conservatorships. And I think we'll touch on those in our Get Vocal. That'd be a good thing to, to touch on. Yes. But, you know, I, I think that this was an important episode that wasn't as kind of snarky or funny as like <laughs> as we usually are, because it's something that's happening right now. And there's someone out there that she may be victimized by this process. and. I appreciate that the Free Britney movement, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything that they're proposing, and I don't think that they're thinking it through because I don't think they have all the information, but this is a conversation that has to be had, and maybe this will lead towards better laws that protect people. There's very little these days that has the word movement after it that I can fully get behind. <laughs> right. It is like, you know, all in as people are, I'm like, oh, you, you probably shouldn't be so all or nothing about any one thing. So um, yeah, I, I know what you're saying there. So join us for our Get Vocal this Saturday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. We will talk about a couple of other celebrities and we're also going to talk about the movie I Care A Lot on Netflix because it is recent, it's good, it's creepy, and it deals with conservatorship. Well, it also deals with the really dark side of people that there are actually people out there who take advantage of conservatorships yes. to a, a really horrific degree. Yes. And we are going to have a special guest that worked on the film join us. So we want you guys to join us too. And I guess that's it for today. It is. And we'll see you guys next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye folks. Bye -bye. See you Saturday. Bye. See ya.
We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.